you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles as we continue our study this morning in the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. So we are studying this morning, um, and we began our, our study in the book, uh, or last week we began our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it is, some have said it is perhaps the most difficult book in the Bible, I don't know about that. It is certainly a challenge, but uh, it is a fascinating book. And one of the great things about being able to go through the book of Ecclesiastes is that most of us are not familiar with the book. So it's like we are, we're treading in new territory. We're going on new ground, ground that maybe we're not entirely familiar with. So if you will, this morning, our text will be, we're going to take a rather large chunk of text. Chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 26. Listen, church, as we read the words of the living God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is but striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planned in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained in me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to wisdom, to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. 
And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembering, remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. And because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person that, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Some of you this morning have heard of a man by the name of Tom Brady. Tom Brady is considered the goat by some. That is the greatest of all time, the greatest American football player who has ever lived. I think he's probably playing today. Tom Brady is a man who has everything. There was an interview with him, and I think it was, it was a number of years ago, because he only had three Super Bowl rings at the time of this interview, um, and I think he has seven now. Um, and I could be wrong. Some of you all sports fans can really correct me. But at the time, they, Tom Brady has won, I don't know, six or seven Super Bowls. He has... He's, Seems to be a pretty good-looking guy. He has a supermodel wife. He is wealthy beyond probably all compare. His football salary is off the charts. His wife probably makes more money than he does. He probably can go into any restaurant and never buy a meal. Somebody's going to buy the meal for him. He has everything that you could imagine. And the interviewer asked, or came up in the interview about being satisfied, about knowing the meaning of life. And he says, I don't know. I don't know what the meaning of life is. I don't know how to be satisfied. If somebody knew, maybe you could tell me. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes in this section, we are going to encounter a man who has experienced everything. And he has found that it is to be 
it is wanting and it is lacking. So let me give you a little bit of a review of where we've been, where we began this book last week, and then I'll give you a little bit of preview and we'll look at this passage of text. It's a large passage of text, but I wanted to keep it together because it is a complete thought. Um, and it was really... To me, we would have lost the author's point had we broken it up. So bear with me as we have this very large passage of text to deal with. But here's where we were. We started the book of Ecclesiastes last week, and we learned that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the end of all things is to fear God and to keep His commandments. That is, the preacher, the, the man who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes also wrote Proverbs, who said that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And then at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, that same author, says this, that the end of all things is to fear God and keep His commandments. The beginning of life and the end of life. What is the key? Fear God and keep His commandments. This is at the heart of this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, here's the thing. Probably most of us don't believe that. Or, if we do believe it, we find it difficult to consistently live such a God-centered life. And the result is that we seek meaning and fulfillment elsewhere. We seek meaning and fulfillment in our work, in our knowledge, in our accomplishments, in pleasure, in relationships, in ability, in our identity. And all of these we are going to find have their place. And they may even be good in and of themselves. But they belong to the realm, quote, under the sun. We talked about this a little last week because this, this phrase that the author uses, under the sun, is that realm of man, that realm that is dominated by the creature, not by the creator. It is the realm in which we live. And we contrasted it because last week we saw the realm above the sun, and, and we'll see that again, the, the realm above the heavens, which is where God dwells, um, but the realm under the sun is, um, is the place where we find things like fulfillment in knowledge and accomplishment and pleasure being the, that which is seen as providing ultimate meaning and ultimate fulfillment. And so... All of these things, accomplishments, identity, pleasure, relationships, belong to the realm under the sun. The realm dominated by the creature, not the creator. That realm that is not governed by the awe of God. We saw last week this very, very key phrase. In fact, the theme of the book. Does anybody remember what the theme of the book is? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And, and that is the constant refrain of the author who has pursued meaning apart from the fear of God. He has pursued meaning in life, fulfillment in life, apart from the fear of God. And we talked about vanity. What, what does vanity mean? Well, we, we, we learned that it is the, the Hebrew word hevel. And, and hevel... Just the dictionary form of it means something that is transitory. It is a mist. It is something that is temporary. So 
we use the illustration, on a cold morning, go out and breathe breath and the mist that comes out and then is gone, that's Hevel. It's transitory. But we also then went beyond the dictionary form and looked at how it's used in the Bible. And probably one of the ways that we are going to translate or understand this word vanity or hevel is um, pointless or meaningless. We, we learned that idols were called hevel. That is, it's not that they were transitory, but that they are meaningless. They are pointless. They are empty. They are of no value. So vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. Well, I hope you're encouraged. (laughs) Ecclesiastes is a dark book. And we talked, I tried to drive that point home, but for those of you who were not here, um, we will continue to warn you that the author um, is going to take us to some very, very dark places. And then once he gets us to that dark place, he's going to keep going. When we get uncomfortable, he won't stop. He's going to take us into greater discomfort than we really want to deal with. He does not allow us to get away with simple Sunday school answers. And when the road gets dark and unbearable, and we say, I can't go any further, he says, oh, we got a ways to go. You see, the book is dark, and that is the author's purpose. He wants to contrast a life in pursuit of satisfaction. He wants to contrast a life in pursuit of satisfaction apart from the revealed wisdom of the living God. So, life, a pursuit of fulfillment in life apart from the living God, is going to be contrasted then with life given a life lived in the fear of God and keeping His commandments. So that's where we've been. And I'm just warning you again, the book is dark. Today will also be dark. In fact, probably for the next 13 weeks, the book is going to be dark. But I'll probably say that every week. So here's where we want to go today. The preacher, the author, is going to highlight his own personal journey to find life's lasting meaning. So today we're going to get an autobiography, if you will, of the preacher, the author's pursuit of lasting meaning in life. He's going to detail his investigation of this pursuit. He is going to pursue meaning in life through wisdom, pleasure, accomplishments, possessions. And despite their promises, he's going to discover that, the, that pursuing those things is merely chasing the wind. So that's where we've been. That's where we're going to go. Let's look at chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 18 here. And his first test is going to be wisdom. But what I want to do is I want to uh, pick up again a little bit about uh, who the, the author is. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. These verses are going to provide an overview um, that he's, well, he's going to give us some detail. But let me talk a little bit about the, the preacher. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This word preacher here is the Hebrew word koheleth, and it simply means one who gathers, one who collects, 
And so um, that's why he's called the preacher, because he, he gathers, people are gathered to hear his wisdom. He gathers people to uh, instruct them, to shepherd them, to guide them, to lead them into green pastures. So he is the preacher. We might even call him a shepherd because he is gathering his people together so that he might instruct them, that he might lead them to a place of wisdom that they might understand. And so he is um, the preacher or the shepherd. He is also king. We might We might refer to him then as the shepherd king. Throughout the book of while we're here in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to refer to him as the preacher. But um, a shepherd king would be a, another good way to describe him. And I like this idea that he, that he makes sure that we understand that he is king. He's the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Why that's important for our study, and it will be especially important for us today, is because as king... He has unlimited access to all of the pursuits that people say will make you happy. He has an all-access pass to life's advantages. He is unhindered in his quest to discover lasting meaning. He is not short on finances. He is not short on influence. He is not... um, held back by access to information. He has everything and then some that could uh, provide answers for him and he is going to explore them and he is going to explore them in great detail. He's not, it's not going to be just a passing like, oh, well, I kind of you know, checked out education and I took a college class and so, yeah, wisdom, that doesn't really do it. No, he is a guy who pursues and delves into it. He will get multiple PhDs and then say, yeah, that just doesn't do it. And so armed with these resources, the preacher is ready to apply his entire being to his pursuit. In fact, we're going to see over and over again, I applied my heart, I applied my heart, I said in my heart. So he is, the heart would be the center of a, of a person's being. I I applied my entire being to these pursuits. He didn't just kind of taste of them. He delved into them. He immersed himself in them. And you can see in verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then a little bit later on, I've, he, he applies his heart to wisdom. Here we would probably argue, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, wisdom is, I believe, in the preacher's view, the highest of virtues. What humans can learn apart from special revelation from God, this is wisdom that is done under heaven. This is wisdom that humans might glean and take in apart from the special revelation of God. I applied my heart to seek and to search by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He is going to discover that the height of wisdom, and remember, this is Solomon. 
Do you remember Solomon's first prayer to God? And God offered him, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon's prayer was, I want wisdom. God said, I'm going to give you an abundance of wisdom. So, here is a man who's going to discover that the height of wisdom, even his divine gift of wisdom, is insufficient to discover lasting meaning. He's going to call it striving after the wind. Who can catch the wind? Figuring out the meaning of life is like trying to hold the wind in your hands. So go out there today and if the breeze is blowing, grab it in your hands. That's his, he's going, man, I've applied my heart to wisdom. And God has given me great wisdom. But even that, wisdom under the sun, key phrase, is like striving after the wind. Figuring out the meaning of life by natural wisdom is like trying to hold the wind in your hands. He ends up giving us this little proverb. After all, he wrote the book of Proverbs. Here are some others. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Some things in life are so bent, they are so out of shape that they resist all effort to make them straight. Perhaps you've had an argument at home and you've said some things that have done serious damage. Even though you might reconcile, there are just some things that have lasting effects. Maybe a moral failure. Maybe a conflict at church that has had lasting value. The crooked just is not made straight. No matter how many sermons you hear, no matter how many people um, love you and, and um, nurture you, the crooked just is never made straight. No matter how hard we try, we cannot bend them. We cannot um, bend them back to the place they were. Earthly attempts at meaning are crooked and cannot be straightened, and they are lacking. Life is like an account that will not balance. My, my bookkeeping software, sometimes if it doesn't balance with my bank account, it'll allow me just to balance, and it'll just, I don't know, I don't know where the money comes from, but it just zeroes everything out. It adds, I don't know, whatever I'm lacking. I'm like, going, yeah, now I have a zero, but where did that come from? It's like, I didn't balance because I was off. But it just, I don't know, it added some money from somewhere. This is the idea. It does, doesn't balance. You can, you can add resources, but ultimately it does not balance. We don't even know what is missing might even be the idea. Life is like an account that will not balance and we don't even know what's lacking. We don't know what's missing. We make adjustments, but this is only fudging the numbers. The author says, I have said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me in, Jeru in Jerusalem before me. My heart had great experience, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also 
was striving after the wind. Here we see the shepherd king exploring every angle. If wisdom does not satisfy, perhaps foolishness is the place of ultimate meaning. But this also proves to be pointless. Vanity, vanity, hevel, hevel. So the shepherd king has sought fulfillment in life apart from God in wisdom and discovered that is not the solution. When we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the author, the preacher, is going to um, detail other areas. So he begins by seeking wisdom. That is, human wisdom apart from divine revelation. Human ideas that are the answer to life's questions apart from divine revelation. And he said, man, it doesn't make the, it doesn't make the crooked straight. And it has no lasting value. And I, I, it equals zero. Well, the preacher's not done. He says, there's still a lot of places I can go. And so he is going to um, detail other places that he has looked for ultimate meaning. And again, remember, he's the king. He has no lack. He has an all-access pass. He can go wherever he wants to go and do whatever he wants to do. And he is not lacking resources. And he is going to demonstrate, man, I've gone everywhere. And here we see in chapter 2, the first 11 verses, that the preacher becomes a hedonist. Seeking fulfillment, I'm sorry, a hedonist where personal happiness is his chief end. And we talked about this last week. What is the chief end of man? But to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, the preacher is going to say, no, the chief end of man is to enjoy myself and to glorify myself forever. I'm going to seek that out. You're going to find that it's vapor, it's smoke, it doesn't last. So the first place he goes... I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Behold, but behold, this is vanity. And I said of laughter. So he's going to seek pleasure, but the first place he's going to go is laughter. Whether this is an attempt at humor in an awkward situation or whether it is humor as, a, as words of derision towards others or it is a diversion from the mundane laughter can powerfully prop up the dissatisfied person. Likely, this is perverse humor. It is frivolous. It is superficial, sarcastic, and perhaps cruel. Perhaps it is laughing at another person's expense. But even if it's just pure comedy, I tried laughter, things that are joyful, And it is empty. I've read in some places where often comedians are some of the most depressed individuals living amongst us. And they use their humor to hide their struggles. Laughter. Oh, it's a great diversion. I love to laugh. So do you. And it is a diversion. And ultimately, it does not make the crooked straight. It becomes vanity and empty. 
Well, let me try something else, he says. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to hold on and, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven the few days of their life. Well, after a hard day of doing whatever Solomon had to do, perhaps a glass of wine or three would be the answer. I want you to note how his heart is still guiding him. And one may feel in their heart that they are on the right track, yet it is the heart that has not been transformed by God will only deceive. And perhaps alcohol is the place where I will find my satisfaction. That will be the place where I will find my joy. That will be the answer to my question. A life dedicated to inebriation, the preacher says, is vanity. It is hevel. It is empty. It is meaningless. It is smoke. What satisfaction it offers is brief. And for those of us who have pursued this in the past, you know. Because eventually you get sober. And then reality hits. And you either deal with reality or you go and get another drink. But it never satisfies. It never ends. It doesn't bring you ultimate satisfaction. It, it, it maybe delays some of the pain, but it does not make the crooked straight. It just makes you more crooked. And you just need to do it every day over and over and over again. Vanity, vanity, over and over. It is vanity. Well then, laughter doesn't do it. And drunkenness doesn't do it. And then he goes into the experiment number three, which is accomplishments. I made great works and I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He is an architect and an engineer. He is making buildings and vineyards for himself. Solomon spent 13 years building his own home. You find that in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And his vineyards were second to none. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 11. He is an architect. He is an engineer. He is a horticulturalist. He is a viticulturalist. Home improvement. If only I could have that house. There is a house that I have dreamed of and I'm going to build it. And then when it's built, oh man, I'm finally done. Solomon spent 13 years building his mansion and when it was done, it was a mist. I have planted trees and vineyards Gardens and parks and fruit trees. This is, note, very Eden-like, isn't it? He has built himself a secular garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit. I got it all. And it is a mist. And it is meaningless. 
the author is not simply an engineer. He is not simply a man who has built his dream home. He is not simply a man who has planted vineyards and gardens and some of you love your, your gardening and you, man, my grandfather was an amazing gardener. People would stop by his house to take pictures of his front yard. But we also see the preacher's innovation. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So how do I, how do I water the growing trees? Well, instead of going out and watering them, I'm going to build pools, which is going to irrigate. The, uh, he's an innovator. He finds solutions to problems. He's not only an engineer, but he is a problem solver. And he finds, through innovation, he finds ways to fix things. And some of you are really, really good at that. You see a problem and you come up with awesome innovations on how to solve it. And he's like, I've done that. I'm an engineer. I'm a horticulturalist. I've got multiple PhDs. I invent stuff. And it's striving after the wind. But wait, he's not done. He talks about things that he has, his possessions. So experiment number four, let me just find life's meaning in the things that I own. And the first one, he says, is that I had slaves. In other words, I purchased human souls to do the work for me. Someone else do the hard work. And because of his wealth and the vastness of his realm, he purchased humans to make his life easier. So instead of me doing all the work, I'm going to force somebody else by threat to do the work for me. I'll just sit back. I'll buy them at a cheap price and they'll do, I'll get way more than a return on my investment. I will treat them in an inhumane fashion in order for me to succeed. Hey, I got it all. He also says, I have herds and flocks. In fact, it says, more than any before me. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 23 would be a great place to go, which talks about um, just the the amount of cattle and livestock that was used for his dinner. I got it all. Man, I got people working for me. I've got herds and I've got flocks. And then he says, silver and gold. Which, by the way, if... When we look, most of Solomon's silver and gold came from taxation. So I got other people giving me money. I'm not even inventing stuff. It's not even I'm going out and doing a, a, a day's worth of work to get this. No, I got other countries, other kings lavishing me with gold and silver. I got, I got money beyond compare. And he talks about, I hired musicians. I got singers, both men and women. So Solomon is going, well, man, I got 
all this food with all this livestock that I've I got wine galore. I live in this beautiful, beautiful home. Now think of the musical group that you like the most. And you don't go to their concert. They come to you. They're in your home. So whoever that may be, on whatever, and, and even if your favorite changes over time, oh, I got this new group of singers coming in, and they are professional people singing and entertaining me in my huge home with all of my food and all of my wine. And I've got a view of all of my vineyards. I got it all. His vast wealth and his power allowed for musical professionals to come and entertain at his place. And then finally, and I got concubines. We learn from other places in Scripture that Solomon had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Philip Ryken in his commentary writes this, The erotic luxury of this vast harem was the royal icing on his cake of pleasure. Man, I got a beautiful home. I've got a multitude of food. I got alcohol beyond compare. I've got entertainment. And I've got erotic pleasure that is unrestrained. Now, many people who hear this may say, that's the type of person who has it all. That is what we are trained to pursue. Man, if we could just have that, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would finally be able to say, I've I've got it. But Tom Brady would say, I don't know, this doesn't do it. Solomon says, this isn't it. So, one of the things I want to point out that I think is significant in this section that we just went through is I want you to note the first person singular, the, how often the first person singular is used. It is me, myself, and I. That is perhaps the main word in this section. Me, myself, and I. I, 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 I did this for myself. Me, 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 me. This sense of accomplishment, this sense of satisfaction, his creativity, his physical and and carnal desires, he has no lack. The verdict, however, is that all is heaven. It is vanity. It is striving after the wind and nothing was gained. And again, we probably find ourselves maybe even envying his list. So this is a man who has pursued satisfaction with no limits. No restrictions. Nothing holding him back. I got got all the money to do whatever I want to do. I've got the power and the influence. I can have everything I want in abundance multiple times. And all of this was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's that phrase, under the sun. Well, he's not done yet. Verses 12 through 23. I'll be with this fairly 
quickly, but the preacher returns to where he began. Perhaps I missed something. Sometimes when, you, uh, when things aren't quite working out, you go back to the beginning. I know I've been lost a few times hiking or cycling and what have you and not quite sure where I am. Well, one of the best things to do, or one of the things, I don't know if it's one of the best things to do, um, but one thing I do is go back to the last place that I knew where I was, the last familiar place. This is what the preacher is going to do. It's like, well, none of that's work. Let me go back to wisdom. That's something that I know. That's something I'm familiar with. Let me go back to where I began. Perhaps I missed something. The preacher has eliminated all that we would consider the good life. So now he returns back to where he began and through, and he's going to come back to wisdom. So I returned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. I already tried it. It didn't work, but nothing else is working. Let me go back to the beginning and reassess. Make sure that I've really explored this well. He's eliminated all that we would consider the good life, so he returns back to wisdom. And then we learn that wisdom has its own limitations. In fact, we saw earlier that he pursued not only wisdom, but folly or foolishness. And he found that, well, being a fool, being foolish, being ignorant doesn't help. Wisdom doesn't help. And so now he comes back to wisdom and um, he determines that wisdom is superior to foolishness. Well, all right, well, he's making advancements. That's as far as he's gotten. Wisdom is better than foolishness. It's it's better, like light is better than darkness. Wisdom not only provides light, but enables us to see. It is better to be wise than a fool. I think we would all agree with that. But now he takes this thought further. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Amen. I think you finally got it. And then he, like I said, he takes us to a dark place and he's going to take us further. And then we die. The wise and the fool suffer the same fate. They both die. So if you're the wisest person who has ever lived, or you're the biggest idiot who has ever lived, you both die. Both suffer the same end, and the preacher realizes the limitations of wisdom and determines, well, then it's pointless. Because both the wise and the fool die, and they're forgotten. Both the wise and the fool are soon forgotten. They both die and neither of them are remembered. You think about in history, there are probably, think of the billions of people who have lived and there's probably a handful of people whose names we, we know. And, and I don't want to depress you, but since we're in a depressing book, this applies to me too. More likely than not, you and I in a few generations will be utterly and completely forgotten. And this is, well, the preacher's going, well, I gained all this wisdom, but I'm going to die. And then what? And then he, he gets even, and the result is then, I hated life. All that is done under the sun is grievous, it's pointless, it's striving after the wind. I even hated the toil which I do under the realm of the sun. Why? Because everything is going to be left to somebody else and that person may be an idiot. 
So I get all this stuff and I, and I live this great life and then I die and the person who gets my stuff may be a fool. Everything gained by my wisdom is left to the one who's a fool? Yeah, wisdom is better than foolishness, but in the end, the fool may be the one who gets the fruit of the wise. How pointless. Vanity, vanity. Hevel, hevel. It's pointless. And now his heart is given not to wisdom or pleasure, but to despair. He might be the one who invented the saying, life is, good, life is hard and then you die. Which is in contrast with the fool who says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. He's dying with the most toys. And he's going, I don't, nothing's gained. The crooked has not been made straight. Nothing has been accomplished. What do I have to show for all of this? His heart is now not given to wisdom or pleasure, but to despair. I've done everything and there is no ultimate satisfaction. Then I die and all I've accomplished is passed to another and I'm forgotten. How pointless. What do I have to show for all of this? But sorrow, vexation and restlessness. How pointless, how fleeting. Well, I'm done with my sermon. Have a nice day. No. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not done yet. I, I, I got a ways to go. I'll, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm getting there. I'll let you know. But then look at... Yeah, I hated all my toil, which is done under the sun. Me seeing that I have to leave it to the man after me. And then look at verse 24. Verse 24 has confounded commentators and scholars. I, it doesn't confound me at all, not because I'm, I'm brilliant. It just seems to make sense. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Wait a second. Didn't he just say that eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in his toil is empty and vanity and striving after the wind. And now he says, no, that's a good thing. How can this be, considering what he just said? I want you to note, a very ex- an extremely important has been made to the preacher's thought. Did you get it? Do you see it? This is the first mention of God. In fact, it's the first mention of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he has just said, listen, I have toiled, I've experienced pleasure, I've done all of these things, and it's empty, useless, and vanity. And then he turns around and says this, but nothing is better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. The preacher, this is a shift from me, myself, and I Now the preacher considers life not from the realm of the earth as a son of Adam, but from the perspective as a son of God. See, from the hand of God. This is the point of the book. What the shepherd king has experienced is good, and from the hand of God it is good, but it is not ultimate. And that is the preacher's point. Listen, I've experienced the fine life. 
the finer things in life. I've got the great education. I've got everything that you can imagine. Here's the point. These things are good. They're just not ultimate. These are gifts. They are not goals. Eating and drinking and laughter and innovation and improvement and sex and entertainment and wisdom are all good things that have been given by the Creator to His creation. Church, enjoy them. Enjoy them. We're going to have a good meal downstairs. Enjoy it. Be grateful. Let's laugh. Let's encourage one another. Let's have a a good time together. If you're married and you have a, a, a good physical relationship with your spouse, that's a good thing. This is a gift of God. It is not an ultimate thing. The food that we eat downstairs is going to be a good gift from God Almighty, but it is not an ultimate thing. It is a gift from God. When we pray, people often ask, why do you pray for your meal? One of the reasons we pray about our our meal is not because we're afraid that we might get sick, though that might be included in the prayer, but what are we doing? We are acknowledging that this is a gift from God Almighty. These smoked ribs, these are God's gift (laughs) to us. But they are not ultimate. If you think that they are going to make your life complete, as good as they may be, they will not bring ultimate satisfaction. But when you realize that these are gifts from the hand of God, and that God is ultimate, then these things are something that we can truly enjoy. So church, enjoy yourself. Build your house. Build the addition on your house. Enjoy it. Create things. Innovate. Plant a garden and enjoy the garden. Just realize that these are not ultimate things. They will not bring ultimate satisfaction or meaning to life. They only have value when a person is in a relationship with the living God. That's it. Apart from God, there is no enjoyment. There is no lasting enjoyment. True wisdom are... And joy are gifts from God. To consider wisdom and joy as the purpose of life is defeating and empty and pointless. Here's what scripture says. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I pray today that we eat ribs to the glory of God. And, and I saw some nice desserts down there. I will give glory to God. And I want to enjoy my time with you. I want to laugh with you. I want to talk with you. I want to pray with you. I want to weep with those who weep and and rejoice with those who rejoice. Everything, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. That means I'm getting, getting near the, the end. But I, I do want us to understand that Colossians 2.3 tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Do you want true wisdom? Wis- Jesus is true wisdom. 
Seeking wisdom absent Christ or apart from Christ is just foolishness. It is not wisdom. His words are very simple. What is wisdom? Follow his words. And I'll begin here. He has many things that he said. But let me begin with these words. Repent and believe the gospel. That is where we begin our quest or our receiving of true wisdom. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to Christ who died for your sins and will forgive you of your wicked ways. These are the words and of the personification of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom personified. Well then, if that is wisdom, you, and that is where ultimate meaning is found, is in repenting and believing the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day and he's coming again and that he will forgive my sins and that the wrath of God that was, that, that, that was towards me, God's wrath is against our sinful condition. But Jesus will take that wrath on himself and we will no longer be targets of God's wrath. That is good news, my friends. That is really good news that the wrath of God is turned away because of the work of Christ. Well then, if that is the first place of wisdom, you still haven't accounted for something that Solomon dealt with and what about death? Don't you you get all this wisdom in Christ and then you die? Oh, church. Because Christ is alive, the grave is not, for in, is not the end for anyone who is wise enough to trust him. The preacher hated life because he saw that it would bring an end to all his wisdom. But he was only looking at things under the sun. He was only looking at things from an earthly perspective. For those who have set their minds on things that are above and not things that are on the earth, there is life and wisdom beyond the grave. Not only can you um, know God and love God and be in a, a covenant with God, but then you die. And when you die, there is life beyond the grave. This means that who we are will not be forgotten. I told you, in a few generations, you'll all be forgotten. Those who have a relationship with Christ in a few generations will not be forgotten. They will always be known by the God of heaven who has received them to himself. We will not be forgotten. You will be remembered for all eternity as a son or a daughter of the living God. He will know you by name. And after 10,000 years, he will still know who you are. Jesus is our very life and the Bible promises that when the risen Christ comes to earth again, we will be with him and we will be alive with him in glory. The Bible assures us further that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This verse implies not so much that our lives are concealed, but they are protected. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. He not only saves us from God, he brings us into a right relationship with God. And he protects us even until the end of time. Father, we give you